Uh, Joanna earned a, P, a BA uh, from Wesleyan uh, Masters of uh, T, uh, Theological Science. Studies. Studies mm -hmm. at Harvard Divinity School and an MA and PhD from Stanford University. Her interests include prayer, ritual, and healing, affect, emotion, and subjectivity, evangelical Christianity, Brazilian religions, migrant experience, healthcare encounters, vaccine perceptions, and beliefs. She specializes in the anthropology of religion and psychological anthropology with expertise in evangelical Christianity in the U.S. and Brazil, U.S. migration, and studies of affect and emotion. She has published work in the journal Current Anthropology and in the Roman and Little uh, Field Handbook for Contemporary Christianity in the U.S. In fall 2020, uh, Joanna launched a new project investigating vaccine beliefs and perceptions in Oregon, which maintains among the highest rate of kindergartners with non-medical exemptions from school immunization requirements in the U.S. This ongoing research considers the convergence of existing and novel forms of vaccine hesitancy related to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Today, Joanna will speak with us about her first book, in the Hands of God, How Evangelical Belonging Transforms Migrant Experience in the United States, published by Princeton University Press in spring of 2022, which Johanna worked on as a 2021 OHC Faculty Research Fellow. Please join me in welcoming Johanna. Good afternoon, everybody. First of all, my apologies for the small screen. The OHC large screen is out of commission, so um, we will do our best with the small screen, and most of what you need to know and I will share will be through the paper itself. Um, so first, I want to thank the a wonderful OHC team for this opportunity to share my book with you and to hear your thoughts. Um, and as Paul said, I was fortunate to finish writing this book as an OHC fellow in fall 2020. Um, and that fellowship was unfortunately remote, but it's wonderful to be here in person. This is my first time giving a talk at the OHC in person, so that is um, quite momentous. <laughs> so today I will elaborate on some of the core concepts of the book, sharing some ethnographic vignettes to illustrate my key findings. I'll leave plenty of time at the end of the talk for your questions and comments. So in the introduction, I'll share an ethnographic vignette that provides an overview and inroad to the central conceptual terrain of my research. Parts two and three provides an overview of Brazilian migration to the United States and greater Washington, DC, as well as a brief summary of my methodology. And then the core of my talk, parts four and five, lay out the intimate relationship I found between the forms of distress migrant, the forms of distress migrants experience in the United States, the kinds of religiosity they crave, and the efficacy of evangelical Christianity through what I call effective therapeutics. Finally, we'll have ample time for questions after the conclusion. Pastor Jefferson placed a clear glass on the podium and told the intimate gathering before him that human beings were akin to empty vessels. Like the glass, individuals reflected whatever substance they contained, darkness or light. He then enumerated the many evils to which humans succumbed, impurity, idolatry, hatred, divisiveness, and jealousy. As he considered each sin, he placed a small ping pong ball into the empty glass. Congregants watched as the balls gradually filled its entirety. Only God's light, Pastor Jefferson preached, could first liberate and then transform a person's interior composition. Taking a pitcher of water, symbolizing God's presence, Pastor Jefferson slowly poured the liquid into the glass. 
watching contentedly as the water level rose, lifting each sin to the surface, where they swiftly spilled out into the basin below. The Brazilian evangelical churches I studied outside of Washington, D.C. urged their migrant congregants to evaluate and reshape their internal feelings, moods, and desires. Regardless of denomination, I learned that these churches made migrant interiority and the healing of acute forms of migrant-related distress central to their theology and practice. Such an explicit orientation towards bodily and psychic migrant experience I offer helps to explain the widespread popularity of evangelical religiosity among Latin American migrants in the United States, especially among those without documents. Evangelical churches made migrants feel better physically and psychologically through what I call effective therapeutics, the direct and strategic healing of migrant-related feeling states. Pastor Jefferson's ping-pong ball demonstration reveals the main tenets of this theological approach, which I observed in each of the three Brazilian evangelical churches I studied. Across denominations, migrant adherents first learn to scan their internal composition for sins, the ping-pong balls, and to take responsibility for their negative experiences. Second, they turn towards God, working to receive God's presence, the water, into their bodies. And third, they strive to experience purification within an intimate Christian community. During this talk, I outline the theological teachings and practices that comprised effective therapeutics and how it imbued migrants with a consequential sense of betterment. A note about terminology. For my purposes, affect refers to the feelings humans experience in response to their social, political, environmental, historical, and economic surroundings. Rather than private feelings, these are public feelings, often shared among many people living in the same time and space and under the same structural conditions. Therapeutic signifies methods to alleviate suffering, including how experts, including therapists, doctors, teachers, etc., work with individuals to transform their sense of self, what anthropologists sometimes call interiority or subjectivity. Here I'm invoking scholarship by Michel Foucault and Nicholas Rose. By joining these terms in relation to migrant churches, I suggest how evangelical churches sought to alleviate migrant suffering by redirecting congregants' attention from an external world of marginality to an internal world of potentiality. This shift produced the second aspect of effective therapeutics, whereby migrants embodied new selves with new dispositions. Believers worked to discard the maladies of migrant life and instead assume the internally felt and outwardly visible effective marks of Jesus, happiness, and gratitude. Through this process, the marginalized migrant would become the confident Christian. Before turning to the particularities of migrant distress and effective therapeutics, let me briefly review the context and methods of my research. While the first Brazilians entered the United States in 1965 under relaxed immigration restrictions, Brazilian migration did not become widespread until the mid-1980s. With the collapse of the military-backed economic miracle of the 1970s, migration to North America and Europe grew rapidly as middle-class educated and mostly southern Brazilians fled rampant underemployment, unemployment, and hyperinflation in Brazil. Greater Washington, D.C., where I conducted my research, comprises what scholars identify as a new immigrant gateway. By 2010, the U.S. Census found that 21% of D.C.'s population was foreign-born, making it among the largest concentrations of foreign-born residents in the U.S. The region's robust foundations, universities, and international organizations has generated continuous growth in sectors that demand low-wage workers like domestic service, um, and the restaurant and construction industries, each of which demand, depends on migrant labor. Estimates for Brazilians in the region range, according to source, due to the difficulty in counting, in counting a predominantly undocumented group. 
The American Community Survey estimated that 10,000 Brazilians lived in D.C., while the Brazilian consulate estimated that between 26,000 and 60,000 lived in the region. Scholars of U.S. migration often consider Brazilians to be exceptional when compared to other Latin American migrant populations due to their relative socioeconomic and, ed and educational advantages. In addition to speaking Portuguese in an otherwise Spanish-speaking region, Brazilian migrants largely come from the middle class. Despite these differences, Brazilian migrant experience was shaped by three circumstances that impact migrants more generally. These facts include suburbanization of new migrant gateways, living without documents, and employment in domestic services, and manual labor. These three facts of contemporary migrant life shape a common set of effective maladies that migrants encounter in the United States regardless of national origin, one marked by loneliness, anxiety, and feelings of immobility. While based on research with Brazilian migrants, my findings may be instructive about the appeal and efficacy of evangelical Christianity for migrants in the U.S. more generally. My findings are based on 15 months of fieldwork in the greater Washington, D.C. region, concentrated in the inner suburbs of Montgomery County and Prince George's County, which hosts one of the fastest growing populations of foreign-born residents and among the largest concentration of Brazilian migrants nationwide. In addition to the three Brazilian migrant evangelical congregations I focus on in this talk, I also studied two Catholic churches and three spiritist centers, which I write about in chapters five and six of the book and which comprised a talk I gave earlier for the OHC during my fellowship year. Each of the evangelical congregations were led by Brazilian pastors, catered explicitly to Brazilian migrants, and were almost exclusively made up of Brazilian migrants. I participated in the many religious and social activities that comprise church life, including institutional events like multi-weekly worship services, prayer circles, book groups, and Bible studies, as well as community gatherings like baby showers, birthday parties, and holiday celebrations. Now I'm going to turn to the common forms of distress that migrants faced and how this shaped evangelical longing. Brazilian migrants frequently recounted intense bouts of emotional difficulties after arriving in the U.S. and explicitly ranked depression, loneliness, and isolation among the most difficult aspects of living here during interviews and on written surveys. Migrants attributed their distress to various constraints. Without work permits or English language fluency, Brazilians often found jobs that provided few opportunities for sustained social interaction or secure employment. In industries relying on migrant labor, like domestic work and construction, migrants' treatment, wages, and benefits depended on their individual employers. In addition to the vulnerability they faced at work and their isolation at home, migrants cited American coldness, separation from loved ones, and downward mobility with contributing to their distress. In the book, I consider the multiple forms of distress migrants suffered, including anxiety, depression, chronic fatigue, weight fluctuation, and feeling stuck. But today I'm highlighting one of the most common experiences they reported, loneliness, and consider why it was so pervasive among migrants. Beatriz, a live-in domestic worker for a Brazilian family, explained that she felt like a prisoner. Without a car and living in the basement of her employer's house for seven years, she rarely left. I soon learned that Beatriz's experience remained common among migrant women, who spent 10-hour days confined to their employer's house, as empregadas domésticas, cleaning, cooking, and babysitting. Some women, like Beatriz, had moved to the United States already employed by Brazilian diplomats or employees of international organizations. Others had come on their own and become helpers to friends and families, friends and relatives before offering their own services. Many had come to the United States as au pairs, working as nannies in exchange for room, board, and an educational stipend. Despite these varied trajectories, these women expressed some level of exhaustion and exploitation due to their work. 
58 years old at the time of our meeting, Beatrice came to the United States in 2007 after losing her sewing shop and separating from her husband. She had no way to support her adult yet dependent children and so ex accepted a position with a Brazilian diplomatic family moving to Washington, D.C. Beatrice told me that she did not leave the house for non-work activities for her first four months in the United States, and even 13 years later, she left the house only once per week. She received no paid vacation, sick days, or medical benefits. Yet Beatrice was emphatic that her situation was much better than many other domesticas she knew. As proof, she enumerated to me her employer's small kindnesses, small kindnesses stocking the refrigerator with foods she liked, inviting her to their son's graduation, driving her to appointments. Beatrice explained, I have liberty, the liberty to offer a coffee, to give you a juice. I have the liberty to open the refrigerator and eat what I want. I have this liberty. Yet her words did not mask an awareness of what such meager liberties revealed, the dramatic shrinking of her daily existence. If it depended on her, she explained, she would have left long ago. Like most other migrants I met, however, she had not yet saved enough money to secure her family's livelihood in Brazil, and so she remained. In the United States and throughout the world, domestic services increasingly depend on the invisible and cheap labor of women migrants like Beatrice. Such women find the experience of caring for others inscribed on their bodies and minds as they describe feeling increasingly invisible, like ghosts in one account, or in the words of women I interviewed, like prisoners and slaves. Migrants described winter weather and social remoteness in the United States by invoking the same word with great emphasis, frio. Brazil was hot and the United States was cold. In contrast to the vibrancy they associated with Brazilian social life, they discovered that Americans prized money, work, and self-sufficiency. Those who came por necessidade, like Beatrice, pragmatically reflected on the grave sacrifice they had made to pay off debts, support family members, survive as single parents, or simply begin anew, they had left the calor humano, the human warmth of Brazilian camaraderie, in exchange for the cold security of the United States. Like many migrants, Gabriela, a woman in her 20s, expressed strong aversion to the sprawling suburban community where she currently lived, remarking, the problem is, I hate this place. I need people. Brazilians, I think we are all very used to touching and hugging and seeing each other. Anderson, a single man in his 40s, shook his head as he shared his final judgment of life in the United States. Here, no one depends on anyone. For most migrants I knew, the experience of living in the United States brought with it deep and lasting knowledge of saudades, a state of yearning. Migrants left behind children and parents, the former growing into adulthood in their absence, the latter facing aging without them. Still others had lived with relatives in the United States for years or decades until someone decided to leave and could not return, or others were suddenly deported. Prolonged and indefinite separation, both actual and anticipated, magnified migrants' feelings of generalized distress. Nusa, a woman in her 50s at the center of my book, reflected on living in the United States without her eldest child, Vanessa. She had crossed the Mexican border with her two younger sons in 2000 in order to join her husband. At the time, Vanessa, 14 years old, decided to stay in Brazil to complete high school. Planning to return, within a year or two, Nusa and Ruben assumed that the separation would be painful but brief. Soon they realized it would take longer than expected to repay their debts and accrue savings, so they instructed Vanessa to join them in the United States. When she tried to enter, however, she was immediately deported. At the time of our formal interview, it had been 14 years since Nusa, Ruben, and their two sons had seen Vanessa in the flesh. None of them had met Vanessa's husband or daughter. While she had remained stoic during previous conversations concerning the painful details of her life, including her treacherous crossing of the Mexican border and subsequent detainment, this evening I found her rawness exposed. 
She looked up at me, visibly anguished, and asked, can you imagine missing half of your daughter's life? For migrants like Beatrice, Gabriela, Anderson, and Nusa, the conditions of life in the United States became impressed on their bodies and minds, leaving an imprint of distress. While it was easy to see how loneliness afflicted the migrants I met who had journeyed to the United States alone, I learned that loneliness remained equally prevalent among migrants like Nusa who lived with family members. While living with family mitigated some forms of loneliness, it did not ward it off. Rather, the forms of labor migrants performed, the intense U.S. coldness they faced, and the profound absences they felt conspired to make loneliness a significant feature of everyday migrant life. It's important to note that some migrants did seek out medical help for these conditions. Many migrants resorted to antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication, and sleep aids. Some sought out doctors, and in two cases, women shared with me that they were hospitalized for suicide attempts. In general, however, migrants found medical help to be insufficient, costly, or out of reach. Instead, they sought out comfort and healing from local Brazilian evangelical churches through intimate relationships with co-believers and with God. In the remainder of the talk, I discuss how evangelical churches helped migrants cope with the hardships they endured through deploying effective therapeutics. I first began to recognize an emergent effective therapeutics after encountering two phrases repeatedly within the evangelical churches I visited. A igreja é um hospital, the church is a hospital, and o Deus é meu consolador, God is my consoler. Employing these phrases, evangelical adherents and leaders alike contended that the role of the church was to treat the wounds of all who entered. Believers and clergy asserted that churches ought, the church ought to restore people to physical, psychological, and spiritual wholeness, defined as living in communion with God and according to God's precepts. Due to this explicit orientation towards healing, adherents told me that the church should liken itself to a hospital rather than a tribunal, and these are flyers that are expressing that sentiment. I can, sorry, pass it around. I know it's a little tight. Uh, Brazilian evangelicals thus represented God as consoler and companion rather than disciplinarian and judge. This God was physically felt, experientially near and person-like, embodied in intimacy with this God, the sensorial experience of being in this God's divinity brought relief and remained a key component of the effective therapeutics I witnessed. Migrants' responses elaborated upon God as consoler. To the question, when you pray, how do you, feel, how do you see God? Migrants explained, I imagine God seated here on my bed and I'm kneeling at his feet. Sometimes I even imagine him stroking my hair and saying it's okay. I see God as my helper and father. I see God as my friend, guide, and protector. As hospital, the church provided the physical and social context for healing. Intimacy with God as consoler constituted the therapeutic cure. While their distress often stemmed from entrenched social and political structures, migrants learned in church that return to health depended on daily decisions and behaviors that were wholly within their control, decisions and behaviors that would bring them closer to God. Brazilian evangelical discourse attached to love, amor, and pain, dor, articulated this theology of personal responsibility. Clergy taught that love for God, love from God, and love for others resulted from active devotion, while pain resulted from distancing from God. Therefore, love and pain, therefore, were not sentimentus, feelings, but rather decisões, decisions, enacted daily through faith or its rejection. Migrants learned that feelings of well-being or distress should therefore be interpreted as indicators of spiritual health rather than consequences of external circumstances, such as undocumented status, financial precarity, exploitative work, or family separation. 
Through intimacy with God and faithful brotherhood, evangelical churches taught believers how to choose love over pain, happiness over suffering, and gratitude over resentment. In doing so, they strive to move migrants from passivity, vulnerability, and distress into activity, power, and health. I now turn to the five tactics I witness churches deploy and migrants perform to deliberately heal migrant distress. The first three are discourse-based and the final two are practice-based. The happiness of believers, tactic one. Only God, Juliana, the pastor's wife, taught during one book group could guarantee happiness. Pastor Jefferson made this promise even more concrete at Bible study. The fruit of the spirit was peace, happiness, self-control, and good sense. Pastor Jefferson promised the men and women before him that faith would make them slower to react at home and work, able to let things go, and generally be more patient and enduring in suffering. They would learn to feel good. During weekly book groups held at her house, Juliana deployed the first tactic I witnessed, teaching women how to attain a felicidade dos crenches. Juliana's lessons centered on the battlefield of the mind, one of the most widely read and translated evangelical texts authored by Joyce Meyer, a prolific Christian writer based in St. Louis. Chapter 5, entitled Be Positive, became essential to Juliana's instructions. She complemented this message that positivity emanated from faith in God by recounting the parable of two builders described in Matthew 7, verses 24 to 29. One man builds his home on sand, while the other builds his home on rock. The home that rests on rock, symbolizing Jesus' teachings, can weather any storm, while the home built on sand, symbolizing a willful rejection of Jesus' authority, falls apart at the slightest sign of bad weather. Our emotional worlds, Juliana contended, were akin to these homes. If we built our lives according to Jesus' teachings and cleaved to his word, we could maintain good humor and resilience, embodying the positive person. Without our eyes lifted to the divine, however, we would become the negative person, noticing every flaw and becoming depressed or angry at every provocation. The negative person repelled God, while the positive person attracted blessing and companionship. Juliana taught that negativity and negative feelings stemmed from spiritual inadequacy. Those with insufficient faith demeaned God's omnipotence. They judged others for themselves, took justice into their own hands, questioned their lives, became angry and impatient, and resented their circumstances. Such negative feelings crowded out God's blessing and instead let individuals to become immersed in the external world and its problems. One of the primary tasks of believers, therefore, was to discern the will of God and to conform to it. Tactic two, be God's vessel. The second tactic of effective therapeutics involved fashioning the self as a divine vessel. Through teachings like Pastor Jefferson's ping pong ball demonstration, church leaders implored adherents to empty and clean their hearts and minds. Such metaphors encouraged migrants to dismiss negative thoughts and to ready themselves to hear and to feel God. Combined with a framing of God that privileged feeling over knowing, the mandate to be God's vessel encouraged migrants to monitor their interiority as indicative of God's presence or absence. The Brazilian migrants I met repeatedly rebuffed my attempts to elicit concrete descriptions of God. Instead of physical descriptions, believers became much more precise when explaining how God made them feel. My conversation with Felipe and Viviani, a devout young couple, epitomized this contrast. When I asked them to describe how they knew that God was present and how God appeared to them, both Felipe and Viviani reported their sense perceptions. Felipe explained, I'm intimate with God in the way that I allow him to use me whenever he wants. I'm like un vaso na mau judeus, a vessel in God's hand. Viviani commented, you just can't control your emotions when you know that God is there. You don't know if you'll cry, you don't know if you'll laugh. 
Reflecting on specific moments in God's presence during glossolalia, speaking in tongues, Felipe reflected, it's just like if you die today, you know you're going to heaven. Viviani echoed the sentiment, saying, I know it's not from me. I know it's from God. Both Felipe and Viviani highlighted the extents to which their perceptions of their emotional states brought about awareness of God. Felipe noted that he experienced God by somehow evacuating himself and making room to receive God who would fill him up. Viviani, on the other hand, identified God's activity with the intensification of feeling and suddenly losing control. Both came to know God through scrutinizing their interiority. Tactic three, brotherhood in Christ. Brazilian evangelical churches also combated migrant suffering through offering ready-made communities of care to adherents, the third tactic of effective therapeutics. In light of the deep loneliness many migrants experience, the ready-made community and self-defined familia of evangelical churches provided migrants with emotional, psychological, and practical refuge. As Pastor Jefferson explained, the church deliberately fostered intimacy and taught migrants to get closer to people. The practical and emotional benefits of these relationships enabled migrants, in Pastor Jefferson's words, to endure the difficulty of migrant life. As a result, multifaceted relationships of care and obligation existed among the self-defined brothers and sisters in Christ. In addition to the formal time spent together in and outside of church, worshiping, studying, praying, and fasting, congregants cared for each other's children, worked together, lived together, shared rides, exchanged information, celebrated hospital holidays, and played soccer. Pastor Joao, a longtime Adventist church leader, eloquently articulated the transformative psychological impact of church community on new migrants. He explained to me, during the week, these people live very much alone because they're working without talking, without understanding. Therefore, when they arrive at the end of the week and enter our church, my gosh, to hear your language and be able to speak. During the week, if you see these people, they're saying, you're not seeing me. I'm not this person. But when they come to church in their good clothes, high heels, ties, then look at me. Now I'm me. There I did this. There I was a professor. There I was an engineer. There I was even a pastor. I wasn't who you saw over there during the week. According to Pastor Joao, church-going constituted a life-affirming performance in which individuals asserted their pre-migrant selves, enabling them to reassume self-understandings they had suspended during the week. Anthropologists have similarly noted the therapeutic effect of sociality and its generation of dogged hopefulness among those who co-suffer. Such intimacy and the hopeful orientation it produces remains a central component of evangelical Christianity more broadly and defined the migrant evangelical churches I, I attended. From their common experience of loneliness and migrant distress, Brazilian believers forged a dense everyday sociality. Migrants cured their own afflictions in these churches as hospitals through embodying happiness and becoming vessels of God. Deep intimacy, mutual recognition, and relationships of care reinforced these good feelings and their therapeutic potential. Before turning to the final two practice-based tactics and concluding my paper, I want to pause to confront one critical reading of what I'm presenting. Scholars have pointed to the power dynamics inherent in the kind of therapeutics I witnessed in migrant evangelical churches and have thus far outlined. Some readers of my work have voiced concerns that far from empowering migrants, churches may act as, quote, diffusing stations for unruly migrant feelings, effectively neutralizing anger, resentment, and alienation. These scholars raise important questions regarding the potential costs of discourses of happiness and healing. For instance, what kinds of migrant feelings and experiences do churches erase by emphasizing happiness? What broader power regimes do such erasures serve, such as profit maximization for elites? 
While individuals may perceive good feelings to result from their healing, critical theorists argue that larger structures, namely the neoliberal order, configure these affects that maintain neoliberalism's powerful hold. The pursuit and internalization of happy feelings and the rejection of negative feelings, these theorists assert, reproduce structures of privilege, injustice, and harm. It would be easy to apply this reading, a hermeneutics of suspicion, to the material I have presented. By producing happy believers, such a hermeneutics would suggest evangelical churches short-circuited political activity of Brazilian migrants by orienting them towards feeling rather than civic engagement and absorbing them into the Western world's broader happiness culture. Happy migrants, accordingly, become law-abiding individualists, grateful to be in the United States and disinterested in structural change. While such an analysis raises important insights, I turn to what I consider to be an equally significant and often overlooked consequence of the effective therapeutics I witnessed. This therapeutics, I suggest, while apparently depoliticizing and conservative, can also be understood as imbuing migrants with a significant and productive feeling of potentiality, what Cheryl Mattingly identifies as the radical hope embedded in, quote, trying to create lives worth, worth living, even in the midst of suffering. Evangelical therapeutics enabled migrants to project powerful imagined futures within intimate community. These imagined futures remained particularly meaning-laden because they were articulated as divinely conceived and in response to constrained and marginalized everyday realities. In the book, I call this alternative to the hermeneutics of suspicion, a hermeneutics of understanding. In lieu of political or economic power, Brazilian evangelicals altered their felt and lived realities through engaging in prayer, discernment, and testimony. Not only did migrant believers report feeling less despair and greater hope, as a result of engaging in these practices, but they also tied their spiritual actions to the pragmatic pursuit of goods that improved their daily lives like housing, employment, driver's licenses, and visas for loved ones. In contrast to a hermeneutics of suspicion, a hermeneutics of understanding takes seriously the religious beliefs and practices of the people I met, approaching their self-narrations as indicative of how religion, including faith, divinity, spiritual practice, and faith-based community, may significantly transform sense of self and engagement in the world. Tactic four, open scripted prayer. Migrant believers employed open scripted prayer, the fourth tactic I identified to experience themselves as able to impact the most pressing concerns of their daily lives. Rather than succumb to the feelings of being stuck with regard to the constantly shifting terrain of immigration reform and life without documents, prayer provided migrants with a concrete way to navigate and reinterpret undocumented life. Prayer practices carried primary and secondary benefits for believers. First, prayer allowed believers to feel that they could impact bureaucracy through appealing to God. And second, because they felt that they could impact this domain despite their lack of status, prayer emboldened migrants to act pragmatically. Migrants also employed prayer to cope with uncertainty. God's time is different than man's time, Pastor Jefferson frequently reminded the congregation. You may pray for something today, yet receive God's answer in 30 years. Migrants invoked Utemple today was God's time in regards to the many uncertainties of living in the U.S. without legal status. When faced with denied visas and green cards, Lack of, lack of health insurance, unstable employment, and possible temptation, and parents reminded themselves and others to pray and to wait. Rather than constitute resignation, patience signaled migrants' faith and future blessing. Miriam, a Baptist woman in her late 30s, told me that she fought with God about her immigration status for many years. She recounted her eight-year saga applying for a green card. When the application was finally approved, it came with the stipulation that she and her husband await documentation in Brazil. A few weeks later, they received a temptation letter threatening separation from the U.S. 
between U.S. foreign children. Between 2006 and now, Miriam told me that she, her husband, and children have appeared before an immigration court in Baltimore every year to contest the order. To prove that their children had endured extreme hardship on account of deportation, Miriam gathered testimonies from school psychologists, teachers, and lawyers. After six years of arbitration, the judge finally granted satisfaction, enabling Miriam and her husband to await documentation home and home in Maryland. Through much, through much of his period, Mary himself had felt unjustly persecuted by God. Following, following her eventual conversion, conversion, however, she reinterpreted her turmoil as a divine gift. She explained, she explained there's a purpose behind all, behind all of this. When I pressed, when I pressed further, further, she commented, she commented that, that God had reserved her marriage through withholding, withholding the document. With the green, the green card, card and the legal entry permitted, she may have left her, left her husband during a particularly tumultuous time in their marriage. Instead, she had endured and explained to Jesus. As a result, her marriage was stable and she felt control of her emotions. When she encountered upset status and fighting with God, she prayed, saying, God, God, calm our storm and have pass. As she, as she stood at the um, um, Miriam, Miriam transformed her experiences in waiting and waiting into the dirt. Today, I today tell you, tell you, she, my heart, my heart comes calm. I know, I know that my grief comes and God is God is planning. Divine, divine, however, did not, did not mean abstaining from that action. action. Like Miriam, Brazilian, 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 I found I found such industrious among my among my neighbors manners manifold. Migrants migrants reprobation migration Maryland Maryland Virginia Virginia by the insights and resources choices. They track they track the apartment complexes of fire social security numbers versus versus IDs. They encourage family members in Brazil Brazil five hours to work at specific locations learning and learning about recently benefited commerce workers. They discover discovered prenatal clinics and applied to medical assistance systems. They open businesses and energetic and marketing work services. Prayer informs or strengthens such secular activities by ensuring in their minds that their earthly pursuits would be divine and blessed. While prayer imperative and migrants are pragmatically reviewing themselves as partnered with God, giving testimony of the tactic, a certain migrant's rights will and divinely ordained place placed in state states. Testimony provides space for believers to detail, document, and distribute the ways in which they have experienced God's hand personally and to reflect upon the impact of this encounter. Through testifying and adherence, gains gains to God, strives to enhance others' faithfulness and win new converts. Through the giving and receiving of such testimonies, migrants articulate the meaning and purpose behind their own and each other's journeys to the United States. They counteract the feelings of vicarious narrative and isolation by positing themselves as divinely chosen to live in the U.S. within an intimate community of believers. When I first met Diana in early 2014, it was clear she was struggling. A single woman in her 30s, she sat alone in the back pews, often sobbing throughout services. During our conversation, she told me that she had moved to the U.S. from Sao Paulo to be with her boyfriend. While she enjoyed the increased security and quality of life, she bemoaned the absence of good employment. Her university education and background in finance remained meaningless in the United States where she lacked a work permit, had no car, and spoke little English. She had tried babysitting and cleaning homes but found domestic work demanding and dissatisfying. She yearned for the dignity of office works. Over the next few months, I noticed Diana sitting closer to the pulpit, eventually joining the obreros, the lay church leaders in the French in the front pews. Rather than arrive in jeans, she wore tailored skirts and colorful blouses, conforming to the implicit dress code of the esteemed sisters of the church. 
She rarely missed Bible studies and prayer circles and no longer readily socialized with me or the other visitors. Diana's debut as a full church insider corresponded with her testifying from the pulpit one Sunday evening. As she stood at the pulpit, her quiet demeanor gave way to the powerful oration. She gripped the lectern with both hands and addressed the congregation, punctuating her remarks with conviction. Diana described the hardship she encountered as a migrant in the United States. After long days of manual labor, she recounted falling into despair and asking herself nightly, what am I doing here? It was then she told the congregation that she turned to God. She prayed for office work or for God to confirm that she should go back to Brazil. Soon after, she saw a friend's posting on Facebook, advertising an administrative post at a Brazilian landscaping company. She responded immediately, and the next day the company hired her. God had answered her prayers decisively, she asserted, and in doing so, had confirmed that he had brought her to the United States for a particular purpose, not for chance. Through her public testimony, Diana powerfully integrated the three functions of testimony. First, she couched her experience in the United States in terms of God's plan for her life. Second, she addressed congregants as fellow undocumented migrants, both implicitly and explicitly encouraging others to persevere like her against all odds. And third, she marked her deep commitment to and acceptance within the church by publicly testifying and thus representing the church's ideal congregant, transformed from distressed migrant to victorious crenci. Through these three modes of testimony, Diana combated migrant distress. In asserting the theological significance of staying, she redeemed dignity, confidence, and security to her status in the United States, despite her lack of documents. Rather than being stuck as a marginalized migrant, she asserted her divine election to work and reside in the United States as God's chosen, and she positioned herself within a righteous community of care, thus warding off loneliness. Diana thus embodied the success of effective therapeutics. Individually transformed and socially embedded, she encouraged other migrants to be like her, enduring and hopeful in their faith. The five tactics of effective therapeutics I've outlined above, happiness of believers, self as vessel, church as watchful community, open scripted prayer and testimony, led to transformed migrant identity, culminating in insistence on Christian citizenship above US citizenship. Despite their great urgency for U.S. markers of legitimacy like licenses and green cards, migrant believers reoriented by effective therapeutics reminded each other that such documents were meaningless in the kingdom of God. They mitigated their importance by emphasizing a different order of belonging. Migrants urged each other to be more concerned with being soldados judeus, soldiers of God, than cidadaos nos Estados Unidos, citizens of the United States. In this pursuit, neither legal status nor wealth mattered. Evangelical effective therapeutics therefore contravened the expectations of those professing a hermeneutics of suspicion. Instead of producing self-serving individualists who proclaimed national citizenship to be the happy object par excellence, evangelical churches contributed to the individual and collective mobilization of migrants as hopeful and proactive Christians. Through the tactics I witnessed, migrants articulated a powerful narrative of confident belonging and divine partnership. As ordained soldiers in an intimate, heavenly community, those without documents warded off the central maladies of migrant distress, loneliness, and feeling stuck. Instead, they asserted their rightful place in the United States and their ability to usher in God's plan through practiced intimacy with God and their co-believers. Not only did such tactics make them feel better, but emboldened their secular pursuits. Thank you. Questions for Joanna? Well, pardon my ignorance and gender bias, but I have not read your book. It's okay. <laughs> and I've enjoyed your talk. Thank you. 
And I noticed that you relate the personal experiences of Beatrice, Diana, and to a lesser extent, Miriam. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if, having not read your book, yeah. you had also interviewed some Brazilian men mm -hmm. who joined construction crews or yard yes. crews or uh -huh. painting crews and whether they experienced the same level of loneliness, yep. isolation, uh, <clears throat> hopelessness yep. as these women, or was there any difference or not? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. So first of all, I will say um, just a bit more about my methods, and given the context of evangelical churches and the kind of um, more traditional gender divisions mm -hmm. that exist in those spaces. So okay. as a woman, I had way more access to women during interviews than I did men. However, I was able to, through my relationships to women, and once the pastor became comfortable with me, I was able to interview men as well. And even though you would think that perhaps in construction work or in restaurant work or even landscaping work that there'd be more socialization, the men echoed the same kinds of messages that I heard from domestic workers, which was that when you're at work, it's all about work. It's all about dollars and cents. Nobody talks to anybody. Um, you know, it's all about trying to maximize the time that we're here because we're here for a reason, right? And we're here to accrue money, help our families, pay off debts. And, you know, there was that kind of grind in the day-to-day -day work that fed into these kind of negative feelings where the church was really the place where socialization, camaraderie, um, intimacy with others happened. Yes, well, my experience is anecdotal, yeah. and it's not research-based. Yeah. But when painting crew came to my house and a landscaping crew came to my neighbor's house, mm -hmm. all of these activities required teamwork. Mm -hmm. And I noticed, I couldn't help but notice, these people were communicating mm -hmm. with each other. And it may have been all about work, mm -hmm. but they were cooperating to get something done in as little time as possible. Mm -hmm. And communication was necessary. Yeah. Now, it wasn't sort of deep, shall we say, meditative, therapeutic mm -hmm. conversation, mm -hmm. but it was uh, something which required a high degree of cooperation. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, it's, it's absolutely possible that, you know, those kinds of relationships would make loneliness less intense, yeah. you know? But I also think that depending on the nature of those communications and relationships, yeah. they might not actually have assuaged the kinds of deeper, yeah. kind of existential, spiritual grappling that yes. people were doing. Uh, boy, do I smell that bad? Oh, no, no, I was just giving, <laughs> I was going over I here so that I wasn't, no, 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 not at all. No. So, so, so I also don't come from this from research. My research was in something very different. Yeah. I come from this from having been in the Jesus People movement in the 70s. Uh -huh. And so it's like as somebody who came out of that scene. And yeah. so I just I can't ask you all my questions, but when you were doing field work, there are different, my limited experience, there are different kinds of evangelical Christianity. Yes. The kind I've been in, there's uh -huh. some kind of friends of mine that I know now who yep. are completely different. Yeah. And... So when you were doing field work, did they regard you, some people have this idea, you either know Jesus or you don't. Yep. And if you don't know Jesus, you have to be pounded with the gospel or else you're going to hell. Uh-huh. And other people seem to be able to really enjoy somebody's company mm -hmm. without, um, and without worrying about whether they're saved or not. And so I'm curious, how did people regard you? 
Yeah, in the, in yeah these it's churches. a great question. So um, I think it was uh, that definitely shaped my experience because it was very clear that they knew I had an agenda and they also had an agenda. <laughs> so there was way more. They, there was a sense of I was an outsider and I was not within the fold. I was not an evangelical Christian. And so they wanted to help me learn to meet Jesus. And that was kind of part of the fieldwork encounter was very much negotiating that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that I, you know, this kind of gets into some of the ethical depend- dimensions of doing fieldwork because I think in some ways that played to my benefit because people were willing to have me around because this was a proselytizing religion, um, whereas other religious groups that are not proselytizing would not be as happy to have a field worker around. Um, but it also meant that we kind of, you know, they kind of, had their sense of how things should move forward. And I had my kind of agenda of trying to talk to people and having interviews and we kind of negotiated it. But um, they did, I would say, in terms of the spectrum that you laid out in terms of the different kinds of evangelical Christians. So I did research with an Adventist church, a Baptist church, and a Pentecostal church. Mm. And in the book, I talk about why I grouped those all together as evangelicals because there was an emphasis on embodied experience of God. They were all proselytizing. Um, they were all somewhat um, Bible-based for the most part. I mean, Adventism is kind of a separate, there's a whole separate kind of tradition there as well. Um, but each of these things meant that the kind of embodied spirituality and intimacy with Jesus was part of the kind of most critical lens with which people were, were engaging with um, with. Christianity. Um, and yes, in terms of you either know Jesus or you don't, I think that that was a framing. However, there was a sense that there was a lot of confidence if you don't yet know Jesus, you will know Jesus. That, that any anybody who was coming to church was in that process, so they were encouraging it. I don't know if that answers So just to follow up, you yeah. said they're Bible-based. Yes. Did these people actually read the Bible? Oh individually. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there was um you you know everybody had their tattered copies of the Bible, okay. and would be marking it up. And um, there was a lot of kind of practices of um, reading Bible by yourself at home, asking for advice. I don't know what to do. And part of the prayer was flipping to a random page, right. and whatever somebody found would help interpret the li- the life experience that somebody was having. So a lot of the testimonies. Um, shared those kinds of moments. You know, I was looking for a house or I was looking for this and and then I flipped to the Bible and this is what it said and and that all became kind of an ongoing conversation with God. There were a couple other, yeah, Lynn. Hi, thanks so much. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to ask like a related question. I'm I'm not, I don't, you didn't talk about this today, but I know you probably know about it. Um, You mentioned the three, what you call evangelical churches. Yes, yes. Um, and I, I wondered if these particular churches were sort of federated, um, because mm-hmm. in my, my own work in Mexico and yeah. Guatemala, you find, you know, these churches, they may have names that you're not familiar yes. with, but they have branches, you know, throughout the highlands of Guatemala, yep. and then they, they're here in Oregon uh-huh. and California. Uh-huh. And um, so one question is, are they federated? And what kind of power do the pastors have? Because yeah. in my experience, sometimes these pastors control labor. They're actually involved in trafficking yeah. workers and people. So the, yeah. the liberation, the internal liberation, yeah. can maybe coexist sometimes oh, with absolutely. 
other kinds of, of yeah. limits when we sort of yeah. look structurally at how some of these churches work. So yeah. I just wondered in your story what you saw. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, thank you for that question. So each of these churches was related to a larger kind of headquarter church, and some of those were multinational and some of those were domestic, right? So the Adventist church is like a global powerhouse. Um, the Pentecostal church was an, uh, an organization that had sites in the United States and had sites in Brazil. Um, and then the uh, Baptist church was part of a Brazilian Baptist network that had sites again in the United States and in Brazil. With a whole higher Yes, yes. Um, and so I think the point that you raise is really important, and it's one that I try in the book to kind of um, confront head on, which is that my account is not saying that these structural issues don't matter. I think they, they matter a lot. Um, and I think that sometimes what happens is that we look at the structural side with, and then you, you kind of are so blinded <laughs> because of the structural conditions that we don't see how people on the ground might actually be compelled by this kind of stuff, right? And so I think what's important here is that um, they work in tandem, right? That people are going to these churches because of daily life and existence. Um, and that's helping feed these other dynamics, which also do absolutely tie into all of these other orders, whether they be capitalist or neoliberal or, you know, power dimension, hierarchy, whatever you want to see. Um, and in terms of my particular research, again, because of my positionality, um, I did not really have access, nor did I want to start asking questions about kind of financial stuff or dealings like that was, I was kind of being tolerated by the pastor, <laughs> but I didn't, yeah, I wasn't, I didn't want to kind of raise those kind of red flags, but there are, there are definitely research um, works that do more digging in that, in that regard. And that's absolutely at play. Yeah. Um, in my own work in Northern Brazil, yeah. I'm working with native groups, uh -huh. and I do see a real clear, I, I'm having a hard time putting a word on it, the idea of the inner life and the, the tangible difference in how people feel and how they engage with mm -hmm. the world when they are part of some spiritual tradition is, uh -huh. is really manifest. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. Uh, my curiosity is, did you have any chance to find people who rejected this particular kind of community mm. in search of another yes. kind. Yes. Because I'm thinking those are the ones that I've spent most of my time with. Yeah. I'm just curious yeah, yeah, yeah. how that I, there are some people for whom this particular configuration uh -huh. doesn't work. Yeah. So absolutely. So the last two chapters of the book are about kind of competing different religious groups um, mm. uh, in the kind of DC and larger US immigrant religion scene. And so I write about the Catholic Church and I also write about um, spiritist traditions. So I don't know if you've encountered Brazilian spiritism, but it's based on kind of um, 18th century philosopher named Allan Kardec, who kind of reinterprets the Bible and it's uh, kind of infused with other kind of um, forms of spirituality, like passing energy and feeling feeling um, energy in different ways. So like John of God is kind of in that tradition and um, other folks. Anyway, uh, and so I end up saying that while these places do capture a lot of attention, there are reasons why they're not as successful or 
uh, popular as the evangelical churches. Um, and so one of the reasons has to do with the fact that these Brazilian evangelical churches are kind of all over the place. They're in all these different neighborhoods, as Lynn was saying. You know, there, there's an accessibility and access issue. Um, and then another reason is that these churches do everything in Brazilian Portuguese, right? And they have Brazilian pastors. And so it's very much, again, a feeling of community. Um, whereas uh, the spiritist groups in particular were kind of pushing assimilation as a way to kind of adapt to the U.S. setting, and that kind of put a lot of people off. Uh, and then the church, the Catholic church, a lot of folks who come to the United States come and they're Catholic, and then they're put off by American Catholicism, which strikes them as like massively bureaucratized and institutional and without kind of any feeling in it. Um, and so those are kind of my inroads with those other communities. Okay, so like Union Vegetal or any of that? No, yeah, yeah, those have, I mean, there might be some like, um, like Tejerus and like Condomble, but that um, not in a significant way among the population that I was studying. Yeah. We have a couple more minutes if anyone else has any questions. Well, so much, so much to ask you and so little time. <laughs> but, uh, Yes, at, at the earlier part of your talk, you referred to uh, these migrants with or without documents. Yes. So I wondered uh, what effect documentation or the lack thereof yeah. has yeah. on the experiences of these people, and specifically vis-a-vis -vis your research topic, the uh, activities in these uh, faith communities. Yeah, I think, again, it's a great question. So. Among the people that I was talking with and studying, um, they pretty much matched the larger statistic among the Bra Brazilian population, which is that 70% tend to be undocumented. Um, and of course, there was a mix of people there who some of people had were able to attain green cards during the time of the research, or they had gotten employment sponsors or through marriage, um, but that the general kind of contours of their life had not changed all that dra dramatically. I, and then, but among people who are in kind of more um, mobile and more kind of uh, economically uh, stable positions, so there were all, there's also a lot of Brazilian immigrants who come and they work in, you know, the World Bank and the, and, and universities and, you know what I mean? So people who kind of, who come with greater credentials and greater status, oftentimes they would not be in these evangelical churches and they lived in a different part of the, um, of the, of the region. So I do think that, you know, there is a lot to do with kind of access and infrastructure and support. Um, and that partly the story that I'm trying to tell is it's because there is so um, little support and such massive kind of vulnerability and exploitation that people face when they come to this country without without that kind of status, um, or even without kind of consistent status, even if one person in the family has status, right? That that feeds this kind of need and this kind of relationship with the church. Yeah. So let's pause for a moment because it's just about one, and I know a couple of people need to leave, so people can leave. But if Joanna's willing to stay, yeah, I can stay for another uh, time. We can have some more yeah. questions. So first, let me say, let's thank Joanna again. Thank you.